Well, we continue on in our sermon series through the book of Psalms, looking at Psalm 78, my sermon this morning entitled, The Glorious Deeds of the Lord. Great job, Sarah. Well done. Psalm 50, Psalms 73 through 83, including Psalm 78, are Psalms that are attributed to Asaph. Asaph, according to 1 Chronicles 15, was a Levite who ministered at the tabernacle, and he was appointed by David to raise sounds of joy on musical instruments. Later, he would be elevated to be the chief musician. Asaph's sons prophesied with lyres, harps, and cymbals, and they were also appointed to serve as well. Asaph and his descendants were purposeful in passing on the practice and the understandings of musical worship to future generations. And their focus was a proclamation that God is good and his steadfast love endures forever. Now Asaph, as Psalm 78 clearly teaches, Asaph understood something about the ways of God and about the ways of God's people. You see, for Asaph, God is a God who does glorious deeds. However, God's people are a people who forget who God is and what God has done. Asaph understood the grave danger in this, in forgetting what God has done. Psalm 78 is his inspired attempt at not only instructing on the benefits of recalling and teaching both God's will and God's works to future generations, but it's also an application of that truth. Asaph himself in Psalm 78 retells the glorious deeds of the Lord, ensuring that they won't be forgotten. Point number one, Asaph's thesis, verse 5 through 8. Asaph's thesis, verse 5 through 8. Asaph's position in this psalm is that when God's people recall and teach the coming generations the glorious deeds of the Lord, then hope and faith will be stimulated. Obedience will be encouraged and unfaithfulness will be prevented. Now, we've learned as we've gone through these psalms over the summers, time and time again, that these hymns teach us. They instruct us on many things. Certainly, they instruct us on how to worship, but they also instruct us on how to behave and on what to believe. And Psalm 78 is no different. Its author, Asaph, has a point to make. He has a position that he wants to promote. He's got an idea that he is trying to convince all of us of, and I have called this point Asaph's thesis. This is the main idea that he puts forward to God's people for their instruction in Psalm 78. Now understand that Asaph's thesis is really God's thesis. That is, Asaph has taken his position based on what God has already commanded. We read in Exodus chapter 10, verse 1 and 2, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, 
and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them that you may know that I am the Lord. But it wasn't just Moses who was required to remember what God had done and teach what God had done to following generations. In fact, God made this commandment to all his people, like in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 through 7. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Now the purpose of the command to to remember what God has done, to teach what God has done, to remind what God has done was the perpetuation of faith among God's people. Asaph sees in this psalm three positive outcomes related to the teaching of these things and the reminding God's people of his glorious deeds and his will in all things. First of all, God's people are to remind and teach these things that the rising generations should set their hope in God. This is a hope based on faith in the promises of God. Second, God's people are to remind and teach these things that their offspring might keep his commandments. And third, God's people are to promote these ideas to the future people of God, that those people, to quote Asaph, might not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Now, we've had a a perfect illustration, really, of this this morning. As we witnessed baptisms, as we witnessed people recalling and reminding us of the glorious work of God in their lives and his will in their lives. They have essentially said to you through their toast testimonies, set your hope in God. They have reminded us through their obedience to the commandment to be baptized. They have reminded us to keep God's commandments. They have called us all to not be unfaithful. And so we've seen an illustration of it gloriously this morning. Recalling and emphasizing the will and the works of God, according to Asaph, according to God himself, will foster future faith, it will encourage future obedience, and it will repel future unfaithfulness. And for these reasons, and because it has been commanded by God, Asaph promotes this position in Psalm 78. His thesis, therefore, is that recalling and teaching God's will and work strengthens faith. And what goes along with that is that forgetting and neglecting to teach God's will and God's work promotes unfaithfulness. Now what's interesting is Asaph doesn't just state his thesis. He attempts to prove it. He attempts to defend it against objections. And he does so with three premises. And that's our next point, Asaph's premises. 
and really verses 9 through 72, are all about Asaph trying to prove his point that God's people must remember and God's people must teach of his glorious deeds. Asaph supports his thesis that recalling and teaching God's will and works strengthens faith by considering the glorious deeds that God did, by considering the forgetfulness of Israel, and by considering the ensuing unfaithfulness of God's people. God did glorious deeds. Israel forgot glorious deeds. Israel was unfaithful. Let's take a look at how he shows this to us. Let's start with God did glorious deeds. In verses 12 through 16, Asaph recalls the salvation of Israel from slavery and they're being miraculously provided for during the Exodus. In Asaph's words, God performed wonders in the land of Egypt. He divided the Red Sea so God's people could pass through. He led them by a cloud and by a, a fiery pillar by day and night. He provided water for their thirst in the arid desert. He did glorious deeds. In verses 23 through 31, Asaph outlines the wonders of God, focusing on the wilderness travels, God's wonders of provision and judgment. We hear of God feeding the Israelites with heavenly food. He commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven, and he rained down on the manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. God also provided meat to sate their hunger and cravings. He provided quail in abundance. He rained meat on them like dust, the psalmist says. That sounds good. He rained meat on them like dust. Now, God also performed glorious deeds that sometimes we don't see as glorious. And those are his deeds of judgment, but they are indeed glorious. The anger of God rose against them and he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. God's deeds described in verses 38 and 39 have a particular glory about them. Let me read them to you. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. One commentary notes that it is unusual for God to be the one who performs the atoning activity. Normally in the Old Testament, this work is the work of a priest. Here, however, Yahweh himself takes on the role of one who does what is necessary to deal with his people's sinfulness. Then in verses 44 through 35, we, are, we see that God cares for God, his people in the time of captivity right until the time of conquest. He continues to do wonders. In their time of captivity in Egypt, God sent plagues turning rivers to blood, sending biting flies and bothersome frogs and destroying locusts and decimating hail. And we hear that God let loose on the Egyptians, his burning anger, wrath, indignation, and distress when he killed the firstborn. Through these marvels, we're told God let out his people like sheep 
and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. And so the wonders continue. God brings his people out of Egypt. He brings them to the promised land. He drives out their enemies before them and causes them to settle in that place. Now, as they settle in that place, God continues to act in incredible ways, described in verses 59 through 64. Unfortunately, these incredible ways were ways of judgment in the time of the judges. We read that God's wrath was kindled, that he rejected Israel, forsaking his dwelling at Shiloh. Do you remember we considered that a few weeks ago in 1 Samuel? Israelites died by the sword. They were devoured by fire. They were taken captive. The sound of rejoicing was not heard. The final episode of glorious deeds were performed during the time of the monarchy, and these are laid out in verses 65 through 72. God routed his adversaries and put them to shame, not by an individual from the tribe of Joseph, not by an individual from the tribe of Ephraim, but by one from the tribe of Judah. God, through King David, worked the wonders of war, whereby Israel's enemies were defeated and Jerusalem was established. And so we see in Psalm 58, most of the verses are used to establish Asus' thesis that God should be remembered, that God should be taught. And so he spends much of his time doing that, but that's not all he does to support his thesis. He also reminds us that Israel forgot. Israel forgot God's glorious deeds. He makes it clear that despite the many wonders that God worked for Israel, they forgot. Verse 11, they forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. Verse 42 and verse 43, they did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe, when he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the fields of Zoan. Now, there are two types of forgetting. There is a careless forgetting, which is due to being busy, which is due to being distractive, which is due to being inattentive, and it can be problematic. It can lead to forgetting things, forgetting people, and forgetting God. I remember one time when I was distracted and not as attentive as I should be, and I left my wonderful nephew, when he was just an infant, in a bedroom in our house. I saw Micah this morning. I don't know where he is now. But Micah and Judah were always together, and I was watching them, and I had an errand to run, and I put Judah in the car and left Micah in the bedroom. And I was about 20 minutes away before I realized what I had done. I don't think I told his mother about that for a long time. But we can be forgetful. We can be inattentive. And that is problematic. Yet, Asaph accuses the Israelites of something else. Not careless forgetting, but deliberate forgetting. Deliberate forgetting is the intentional putting out of the memory an object which ought to be remembered, in this case, God. And the deliberate forgetting of the Israelites, the deliberate forgetting of their God is coupled with the forgetting of not only him as a person, 
but of what he has done and what he has commanded. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 9 says, Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and to your children's children. God had called his people, he'd called Israel to be diligent, lest they forget what their eyes had seen. And Asaph makes the point they were not diligent. They failed to be diligent. They forgot. And in their deliberate forgetting, they did not teach the future generations. Now, the third way he supports his thesis pertains to their unfaithfulness. Israel was unfaithful. In verses 9 and 10, Asaph indicates a general unfaithfulness by referring to the Ephraimites who turned back on the day of battle, who didn't keep the covenant, who disobeyed God's law. But in verses 17 through 22, he gets more specific in terms of Israel's unfaithfulness. The Israelites sinned and rebelled against God, testing him and making demands of him. And a belligerent example of deliberate forgetfulness, they questioned God. Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? Now, we know this is intentional forgetfulness because in their very words, they declare that God can provide. And then they immediately question, can God provide? The unfaithfulness of the Israelites was continual. In spite of God's glorious deeds, deeds of salvation, of redemption, of provision, of judgment and compassion, verse 32 through 37 show that the Israelites would still not believe. They would still keep on sinning against their God. Yeah, they would remember him when he judged them, but they would soon return to their unfaithful ways. They flattered God with their mouths, but Asaph says their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. And verses 40 and 41 indicate that this deliberate forgetfulness grieves God and it provokes God. And verses 56 through 58 show the forgetfulness of God's will and his works leads even to the unfaithfulness of idol worship. We read, Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies, but turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow, for they provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. So Asaph presents proof, proof to support his contention that recalling and teaching God's will and God's works will strengthen faith and forgetting it and neglecting it will promote unfaithfulness. He shows that God did glorious deeds, that Israel forgot, and that Israel was unfaithful. We finish this morning with the third point, Asaph's conclusion verses 1 through 4. Yes, in Psalm 78, Asaph presents his conclusion in the opening verses. Because Asaph's conclusion is 
that the glorious deeds of the Lord will not be forgotten, but will be remembered and will be taught to the future generations. Let's hear the first four verses again. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. See, Asaph resolves to recall and to teach the works and the will of God. He will open his mouth. He will utter old sayings. He will not hide the glorious deeds of the Lord. Rather, he will expose the younger generations to the wonders that God has done. Now, before we make any application this morning, I, would, I think it would be helpful to consider one way that Psalm 78 points to Jesus. Now, if you think way back to our sermon series through the, through the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 24, verse 44 through 47, Jesus indicates that the Psalms, and in fact, the entirety of the Old Testament, were written about him. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Jesus essentially says that the point of the Old Testament is him and his gospel. And so one of the ways the Old Testament prepares people to see Jesus and teaches people about Jesus is to help them understand, to help us understand that Jesus is the new, true, and better Israel. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, Matthew's words indicate that Jesus is the true son of Abraham. And being the true son of Abraham, he is the true Israel. And as you consider this, it is astounding how Jesus fulfills all that God required of Israel. Even in their unfaithfulness that we see in Psalm 78, the nation of Israel points to Jesus being the true firstborn and faithful son of God. Let me explain. Psalm 78, as we have heard, spends a lot of its words addressing the unfaithfulness of the nation of Israel in the wilderness where God tested them. If we consider that Jesus too was tested in the wilderness, then we can compare we compare the nation's experience with Jesus' experience. And it becomes apparent why Jesus is considered the, the new and true Israel. Now, in the wilderness, the Israelites were tested with hunger. And in Exodus 16, verse 2 through 3, we see that they failed that test by grumbling against God. They were not faithful in their time of testing. However, we know that Jesus was also hungry in the wilderness after a, a long fast. And Satan came to tempt him 
to tempt him to turn stones into bread. But Jesus remained faithful, saying, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's Matthew 4, 4. Well, in, in Exodus 17, verse 1 through 7, the Israelites now become thirsty. And they again fall into unfaithful. This time, putting God to the test. Moses questioned them, saying, Why do you quarrel with me? And why do you test the Lord? Well, Jesus, in his wilderness testing, was also tempted to put God to the test. But as we know, he responded faithfully. He said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test in Matthew chapter 4, verse 7. We also know that the Israelites in the wilderness showed their unfaithfulness by worshiping the golden calf idol in Exodus 32. Jesus, too, was tempted to worship an idol. We read about it in Matthew 4, verse 8 through 10. Again, the devil took him into a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Old Testament scholar Ian DeGuid writes of how Jesus' temptation in the wilderness points to him being the new and true and better Israel, writing, Israel faced three tests in the wilderness and failed three times. Jesus faced the same three tests in the wilderness and passed all three with flying colors. Jesus was personally reenacting the history of Israel only in reverse, succeeding where Israel failed. He goes on to write, as the new Israel, Jesus personally fulfilled the law for the sake of all who are in him. His perfect righteousness as one born under the law is now given to all who all who are his people by faith, so that our salvation might be through faith, not works. Or more precisely, our salvation comes not through our works, but rather through the works of another credited to our account. So we can see in this one way that Psalm 78 directs our gaze to Jesus and directs our gaze to the gospel, that Jesus is the new and true and better Israel, and that he lived a life of perfect obedience which through his death on the cross is accounted to us who believe. We are forgiven our sins by Jesus' death on the cross, but we are justified, we are declared righteous by Jesus' perfectly lived life as a man that is accounted to us. And we avail ourselves both of forgiveness and justification through faith. That is, we receive these gracious gifts by believing in Jesus. And so know that if you do not consciously and willingly repent of your sin, trust in Jesus and surrender your life to God, you remain unforgiven and unjustified. But as we heard this morning in the testimonies, if you will repent of your sin, if you will trust in Jesus, if you surrender your life to God, you find in him forgiveness and justification. If you're here today, and you have never repented, never repented of your sins, never believed in Jesus Christ, put your faith in him, never surrendered yourself to God, we encourage you to do so 
this morning. And we'd be happy to talk with you about that. Speak to one of the staff members, one of the ushers, someone at one of the kiosks. We would love to talk to you about that. Now, as we acknowledge and and rejoice in Jesus being the new and true and better Israel, I think now we can make an application. And in fact, I think this is the most important application that Psalm 78 calls us to. We, like Asaph, must resolve to recall the glorious work of God and to recall it in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must resolve to continually remember the gospel. And we must resolve to teach the gospel, to teach the gospel to those who do not know it and to continue teaching it to those who do. We must resolve to never forget the gospel, certainly not by carelessness or, God forbid, through deliberate negligence. World-renowned theologian D.A. Carson has noted the way many churches engage with the gospel and how often their engagement takes on a very dangerous pattern. He wrote this, the first generation believed and proclaimed the gospel. The next generation assumed the gospel, and the third generation denied the gospel. When we assume the gospel through not purposely recalling it, through not intentionally teaching it, we will end up denying the gospel. Recalling and teaching God's will and his work, particularly in the gospel of Jesus Christ, will strengthen our faith, but forgetting and neglecting to teach God's will and work in the gospel of Jesus will result in unfaithfulness. And so here's the application. Let us be a church Let us be parents. Let us be siblings. Let us be sons and daughters. Let us be friends. Let us be disciples who relentlessly recall and tirelessly teach the gospel. Let's not assume the gospel and slip into careless or deliberate forgetfulness. Let's say with Asaph, in full conviction, that we will not hide the gospel from our children but we will tell the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord, particularly in his life and his death and in his resurrection. We will tell future disciples of God's might in redeeming his people through Christ's cross. We will tell all the wonders of what he has done. Let's pray. Good and gracious Heavenly Father, We thank you for the testimony of Psalm 78. And we thank you for the testimony of our brothers and sisters in Christ that we heard this morning. And I pray that you, by your spirit, would help us to apply this text to our lives. Let us be convinced, Father God, of the necessity of recalling and teaching your glorious deeds and your wonderful will. Let us be convinced of the necessity of that. Let us be convinced, Father God, of the danger 
of forgetting these things and failing to teach them. And let us understand your will and your work shine most brilliantly in the life, death, and resurrection of your son and his ascension and, and his eventual return. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.